today on Ag News Daily. didn't come in a significant difference differently than the way we had seen the estimates coming prior to the release. The quick side of things, trade on the grain side of things, USDA projected corn lower with export demand dropped by 75 million bushels. They also bumped up the ending stocks for that crop by the 75 million bushels as well. USDA trimmed Soybean ending stocks to 210 million bushels. That's 15 million bushel uh, less than last month's estimate. USDA also lowered its crush estimate by 10 million bushel, but raised the export estimate by 25 million bushels. So as we look at soybeans specifically, again, said 210, that was 15 lower but within the range of the pre-report expectations, as we had talked about, they left supply numbers unchanged, but lowered that crush margin by 10 million bushels. The exports went up. The national average farm gate price is 14.30. That was unchanged from last month. Globally, the USDA lowered its ending stocks by 2 million metric tons to just over 100 million metric tons. Again, within the range of the pre-report expectations, Brazilian production left unchanged. They slashed Argentina's production by 8 million metric tons to 33 million metric tons and raised the export estimate for Brazil and the U.S. to accommodate that shortfall in Argentina. Wheat on their side of things, ending stocks were left unchanged, uh, pretty much within everything for wheat within the USDA's target for pre-report estimates as far as those goes. Obvi- uh, average U.S. farm gate price was pegged at $9 in the March report, uh, not much of a change there. USDA estimated world wheat production up just a little over half a million metric ton from February. The wheat production in Russia at 92 million metric tons, which is again unchanged from February. So pretty much uneventful on those side of things. Not a lot of change on the corn numbers as we had discussed there. So uh, Argentina took the biggest brunt of some slashes as far as crops go in world production, uh, but it seems like demand and ending stocks were adjusted exactly in line with those areas. Ethanol production, again, coming out of uh, reports for this week, the Energy Information Administration released that they saw a weekly build in inventory for the week that ended March 3rd. However, they're seeing a little bit of demand slippage. So ethanol production gained 7,000 barrels per day, which is good. That's a little over the 1 million barrels per day week. That was a little over a 1% gain as far as that goes. What they're seeing, though, is uh, overall domestic inventory continuing to grow because blender inputs are decreasing. So we'll continue to keep an eye on those markets there. Gulf Coast ethanol inventory is a little over 4.5 million barrels. Uh, That is up almost half a million from the week before. West Coast supply dropped a little bit. So we'll continue to keep an eye on China, Chinese demand as they continue to ramp up after COVID. But that's what Barclays was taking a look at. So according to an article released today from Reuters, 
They cut their 2023 oil price in their forecast as Russia continues to keep up with their production. So uh, on Wednesday here, due in part to more resilient output from Russia, higher than expected, the market could potentially flip as Chinese demand continues to grow. But for right now, the bank cut its average forecast for the Brent and West Texas intermediate oil by $6 a barrel and $7 a barrel, respectively, to $92 and $87. It also stated that as we look into the second half of the year and the first part of 2024, they said the market could potentially flip into a deficit of 500,000 barrels per day due to China's reopening from pandemic restrictions. And as their market continues to mature and supply growth continues to grow, outside of what the OPEC can produce. China's oil demand could increase by 500,000 to 600,000 barrels per day. And that's the reason for the deficit, because right now we're running pretty close to even as far as that goes. But right now, the uh, 2023 demand estimate was raised, still within production guidelines. And they said the risk of deacceleration of the economy in the US is actually a minor stage as to what they were considering for production growth demands coming out of China. Flipped a little lighter news and some congratulations are in order for Jessie Scott. She has been named editor-in-chief for Successful Farming, which would be Dot Dash Meredith. She is now going to be chief of the editor position for the Successful Farming brand, taking over Gil Golickson, who has retired. So for more than 120 years, Successful Farming has been producing uh, journalism and articles and news to help farmers improve their operations in their lives. She stated that she grew up on a corn and soybean and calf farm in Marengo, Iowa, where her parents still farm today. She's been with the company for quite a while, says the brand means a lot to her and the staff that she works with and the farmers that she serves, including the family that she grew up helping farm. She's incredibly excited to continue to build upon her experience there. Marty Wolski, Successful Farming's publisher, says this is a defining moment for the Successful Farming brand as the content continues to evolve at an ever accelerating pace. And Jesse has the intuition to fill all those gaps. So overseeingag.com was the previous role that Jesse Scott had been in. She built up her content distribution network and has been able to make it easier for farmers to follow the content they need through social media, online newsletters, and the website itself. She is going to step into this role nearly immediately uh, as far as that goes. She's from Des Moines and will be down here at Commodity Classics. So maybe we can get a couple of moments with her in her new role and provide a little bit of congratulations there. From a high note to maybe a little bit lower note, more farmers are stating that they expect the ag economy to slow down. And a major part of that is ag exports. After the survey that came out here, operators of farms are losing faith that exports will continue to grow or be a growing market for the United States. Their crops, livestock, are diminishing at least only one third of farmers in the Purdue poll stated that they expect monthly ag exports to grow. In 2020, nearly 72% of the respondents stated that they expect 
the ag export market to grow. Agriculture has since the 1970s continued to see exports reach record levels for the fiscal year 2022, nearly 200 billion dollars worth of crops were exported. One fifth of the US ag products were sold overseas in 2022. But according to this report, as stated in 2020, 72% said they thought the export number would continue to increase over the next five years. But the survey from February dipped to only 33% with the same sentiment. US exports have forecast to see weaker demand in the future. The stronger dollar obviously causes some more issues there. 18% of the poll explicitly said they expected exports to decline. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that. The USDA right now exports that estimates that exports will retreat to just shy of $185 billion this year. That would be 6% shorter due to the higher dollar and softer commodity prices not dollaring up that much. So just over 10% of producers say they discussed leasing their land for solar energy, which was a new topic out of this poll, but we'll dive into that a little bit more for you. So we will continue to keep an eye on things there. Uh, we expect there to be a lot of great content coming out of Commodity Classic, but one thing that we hope doesn't happen this year that did last year was several natural, natural disasters caused by weather. Farm Bureau put out in their survey and newsletter that 2022's weather disasters accounted for nearly $21 billion in crop losses. So uh, the graphic here on AgWeb is fantastic, but it looks like you track right up the central western portion of the United States, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, a little bit of North Dakota saw the blunt of things. The 2022 crop year saw many weather extremes, including hail, drought, and derechos. Farm Bureau estimated that up to 18 severe weather events and climate disasters caused exceeding caused damages exceeding $1 billion per event. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reported that 2022 surpassed 21 with the third costliest year in the history of the United States for natural disasters. Nearly 470 lives were lost in these disasters, which is not something that is factored into the dollars and cents. Major disasters, 21.4 billion in crop. A lot of that came from rangeland losses due to drought, 11 billion covered by pre-existing risk management programs. Thankfully, a little bit of protection there in that place, but drought and wildfire caused the largest area there. The remaining was mainly due to hurricanes, hail, flooding, and other severe events like derechos. Texas suffered the most losses in 2022. The 28th state took home $6.4 billion worth of that total. A lot of that came from the cotton crop, nearly $3 billion in that area. Uh, Iowa, for you listeners, didn't even get to half a billion. Missouri, right at half a billion, but $500 million mark. Corn in Kansas took a large hit. Nebraska suffered nearly 200 million in losses for soybeans. Uh, it's quite an interesting map for us to continue to take a look at here. But forecasts are saying that there should not be nearly the damage, but of course, coming in at the third most damaging year, we would certainly hope that 2023 would give us a little bit of a reprieve. 
uh, as of February, nearly 7.5 billion in payments have been issued as part of the follow-up to these naturally natural disasters declared for government subsidized payments to protect and provide risk management tools. Well, listeners, going to keep your headlines a little bit shorter here as we prepare for Commodity Classic. We've got a great conversation coming up for you here. So let's enjoy that before we get into some fun stuff down here. Well, we're chatting about a commodity that maybe doesn't get enough of the limelight attention today with the CEO of the National Potato Council, Cam Corals. Cam, super excited to chat potatoes with you today. For those of our listeners not familiar with the National Potato Council, tell us about the commodity organization. Yeah, um, thanks for having me on, Delaney. Uh, The National Potato Council is the lobbying arm, the public advocacy arm for the potato industry. Uh, As you likely know, potatoes are the most widely produced vegetable in the United States. And um, we, we are one of two national organizations that represent the industry. We, we are charged with lobbying uh, domestic, international policies um, at, the, at the federal level or obviously in, in foreign uh, markets. And then we have a sister organization, Potatoes USA, the U.S. Potato Board that's based in Denver. They are a research and promotion order. Um, so they're the, the potato industry's version of uh, of the uh, uh, beef checkoff or the got milk folks or those those kind of individuals. So, Cam, as you look at important issues impacting potato growers here in 2023, I'm sure there's a myriad of issues. Farm bill comes to mind, economic impact from post-COVID and just general weather concerns. What are some of the biggest issues you're focused on this year? Uh, clearly, 2023 is a farm bill year. I think everybody is is squarely aligned with doing everything possible to make it uh, to to provide the best opportunity for the House and Senate Agriculture Committees to get uh, a farm bill across their respective floors and to the president's desk by September 30th. Uh, There's a lot of variables that we can't control in that, but I I think that's where we're, we're focused. And you may know this, but the National Potato Council is one of the founding members and one of the the uh, leaders of what we call the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance, uh, that coalition effectively speaks for all of the U.S. specialty crop industry, the fruit and vegetable industry. It includes nuts, uh, uh, wine grapes, uh, uh, nursery and landscape uh, interests. So it's broader than just fruits and vegetables. But um, that alliance has been incredibly important in directing resources to the farm bill over the past 20 years that previously the farm bill just it it really didn't reflect the needs of uh the specialty crop industry which when you look at the numbers that's about half of all u.s farm gate value in the u.s and so it it um that disconnect with the farm bill and the specialty crop industry was something we really wanted to correct. And that that coalition has been incredibly effective about building farm bill programs uh, into the final bills that matter for our industry. So for specialty crop growers and specifically potato growers, what are some of the important priorities that you hope to see put into the next farm bill? 
Yeah, our, our, so when you look back kind of over the history of how, how we've been able to, to advance uh, our interest in a farm bill, uh, it's, it's in places that you'll see several common themes. Uh, export promotion, trade priorities, very important for the specialty crop industry. For potatoes, about 20% of everything that we produce has got to find a home in foreign markets. Uh, you, you have uh, pest and disease exclusion, incredibly important. There is an entire program called the Specialty Crop Research Initiative, didn't exist before the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance was formed. SCRI uh, delivers uh, on important high-risk, high-value research for the fruit and vegetable industry. And then you've got things like the nutrition programs, the the a lot of the things that the specialty crop industry grows, certainly near and dear to the potato industry's heart, those are, those are products that um, without a tremendous amount of transformation end up on consumers' dinner tables every single day. And having those, ha having those products um, more at the forefront of farm bill policy, I think it, it connects consumers, the general public, uh, I should say, more directly to U.S. agricultural policy. So we feel like we've been a net positive in, in uh, uh, becoming more of a farm bill player over the last couple of decades. And another uh, issue, I suppose you could call it, that is probably near and dear to the Potato Council has been your first nationwide industry economic report. Tell us about the process to put together that report and what you were hoping to find. Well, it was, uh, uh, as you say, it had been um, uh, something that had been on our minds for a very long time. You've, as the most widely produced vegetable in the United States, we, know, we knew that we had an incredible breadth of activities and was touching a lot of, uh, a lot of businesses and a lot of individual employees. But we really wanted to do a comprehensive study that quantified all that. And so we went to Michigan State University and we rolled this out. We had our, our Washington, what we call our Washington Summit uh, last week. We had a, a, a huge number of attendees in town. And at that time, we rolled out that information. And I'll just give you the top line numbers. Uh, overall, the U.S. potato industry, both direct and indirect impact on the U.S. economy is $100 billion a year. Uh, that includes... 10.8 billion at the farm and near farm level, another 49 billion as you go up the supply chain to processing, wholesaling, retail, and then a 41 billion when uh, you consider uh, food service, all of the various uh, uh, restaurants, uh, uh, retail, institutional buyers. Um, so that comprises the 100 billion. Overall, it is 53 billion. In as a positive contribution to the annual GDP of the United States, 714,000 workers in our country in some way are dependent on the potato industry for their jobs each, each and every year. And those jobs generate 34 billion annually in wages and salaries. So uh, the, we're, uh, we, we found that report to be incredibly informational, not just for the general public, but also for ourselves. And um, I, I think that it's a great story that begins on potato growers, family farms across the United States. Kim, I'm sure that the potato industry, just like 
every other one was impacted during COVID, but have you guys, has it rebounded fairly strong? And, you know, the other factor to consider here is consumer prices at the grocery store have certainly skyrocketed on many products, but it seems like potatoes have stayed relatively stable for consumers. I, I think the short answer is you know, we the the industry overall hasn't fully recovered, but it is recovering. Uh, you're still seeing some of the volatility that uh, faced us in uh, fundamental inputs uh, is echoing into crops. You know, now we're three years off from it was almost exactly at this time three years ago that the lockdowns began to be implemented that the. It, it takes a long time to work off those negative impacts. I think between between short um, uh, amounts of inputs as well as some weather related challenges, you've had uh, shorter crops the last couple of years than normal, um, and the market reflects that for potatoes. It's been it's been somewhat of a tight market. That's really the business of our sister organization in Potatoes USA. They're our kind of marketing and and uh, economics gurus, but the I I I, th- I think the I think the short answer is that we are we are recovering, and some of the programs that we were able to encourage USDA to stand up at the very beginning of the crisis, kind of in that summertime fall time of 2020, those those programs they were intended to be temporary in nature, and fortunately they were. Um, but once they got them implemented, it essentially allowed our our industry to have the cushion necessary uh, to stay in the fight until we could get to a recovery period. So, Cam, I think a good place to end is, you know, looking at things coming down the pipeline with farm bill technology. What's got you really fired up about 2023 for the potato producer? So, so uh, several different things, uh, and uh, you, you, you mentioned kind of the the multi multi billion getting on uh, the, the numbers are staggering with the farm bill. So we want to focus a lot of time there, but I'll also mention a couple of things that are really um, specific to our industry. Uh, so right right now, uh, the 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans are being written. It is a joint process between the Departments of Health and Human Services and Agriculture. And we spend a lot of time on that because what what comes out of the end of that process, and it happens every five years, are recommendations that serve as the foundation for how the federal government is going to distribute nutrition information and also conform their nutrition programs to whatever that, that guidance is provided by these panels. For, for us, one of the, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Delaney, but I am, um, one of the issues that this group of academics on this dietary guidelines scientific panel is considering is whether or not the potato should, be cons- should continue to be considered a vegetable. And when, when we tell that to our industry, when we tell that to policymakers on Capitol Hill or down at the Department of Agriculture, uh, you can you can see that the head shaking that begins, but uh, the that type of potential reclassification of America's favorite vegetable as not a vegetable anymore would cause uh, a huge amount of consu- uh, confusion with consumers. 
it would impact our ability to access farm bill programs that are designed for specialty crops. Because if the federal government arbitrarily says you're not a specialty crop anymore, we're we're just can't play in some of those programs that we've we've had a huge hand in building over the last 20 years. The the amount of confusion, consternation, and unnecessary volatility over these kind of strange proposals is has focused the attention of our industry. Um, on, a, on a positive note, Delaney, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about trade. Uh, we were, at, I mentioned that we had our Washington summit last week. Uh, Secretary Vilsack came and we were very pleased to provide Secretary Vilsack with an award. Um, he has worked over two different presidential administrations to get Mexico fully open to US fresh potato exports. Uh, he was successful in doing that in the last year, along with the great work of, of a number of different folks at USDA, uh, Ambassador Tai and her staff at USTR, and then a lot of congressional support. Uh, we're very excited by the opportunity afforded by accessing the Mexican market. It's going to potentially be, if when this gets fully built out and, and if, if the market is not somehow compromised by politics, this is going to be $150 million a year in new fresh potato exports. That will be between a 10 to 15% increase globally in U.S. fresh potato exports. It is a tremendous opportunity for this industry, and we're really excited to take advantage of it. Wow, that does sound like a huge opportunity for potato growers. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Cam. But thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly appreciate your insight into the potato industry and what is ahead for 2023. So thanks for joining. Absolutely. Thank you, Glenn. And thank you again for hanging out and putting up with me on my first day back, getting prepared, hit some headlines really quick, keep an eye on the markets. Delaney and I will continue to bring you the latest news from down here in Orlando for the rest of the week. But for today, we're going to let you go. Thank you. Thank you.